Um, so Taylor last week took us through Peter, and uh, Peter's just kind of plopped back in. <laughs> he was he was very active in the first part, and then we go into Saul and the conversion of Saul in chapter nine, and now Luke brings us back into Peter. And you kind of go, why? What, what, is, what is going on? Why is Peter being brought in here? And you see Peter involved with three little vignettes. All right? One of them is he heals a man named Aeneas from being lame. The next vignette is he heals a lady named Tabitha and raises her from the dead. Now as he's doing this, he's moving from Jerusalem to where? He's moving to Caesarea where God ultimately takes him. But he goes through Joppa. And, um, and so God's moving him to Joppa and he's relaying these stories. But would you say that healing, uh, raising somebody from the dead is a greater miracle than healing somebody who's blind, lame? Would you agree with that? Yep. Yeah. Raising so, Of course so. I mean, I mean, there's no question. Somebody who's physically dead and they're resurrected is a greater miracle than somebody who can't walk and all of a sudden they can walk. So you see this progression, but then he goes into Cornelius and we see a transformation of a Gentile, a conversion of a Gentile, which I think Luke is stamping here with a big exclamation point saying, there is no greater miracle than a, a changed heart. Somebody who has been born again. Somebody who is destined for hell, but is now a child of God. They had a nature of the enemy, but now they have the nature of Christ. And so he's got this progression going on here. And Peter is stuck right dab in the middle of Saul because Saul was about to come on the scene. And for the rest of Acts, you're going to hear nothing with the exception of the council. When the council tried to decide what to do, you'll hear, hear one more uh, story, I think, about Peter, where Peter is Peter goes back and he relays what happened with Cornelius. But you've got to remember, back over in Matthew, uh, Jesus told Peter, to you has been given what? The keys to the kingdom. You've been given power and authority. And so how does Peter manifest that? Well, over in Acts chapter 2, he preaches and what happens? 3,000 Jewish people come to faith. A couple of chapters later, 5,000 more come to faith. So he has ushered in Jewish people, many of whom probably were rejecting Christ because their leaders were saying, you know what? This guy's a blasphemer. And you've got to remember, we're pretty hard on the Jewish people. We probably would have been right there with them. I want you to think of your favorite preacher, whoever it is. Your favorite leader, Christian leader, whoever it is. And imagine some person pops up on the scene and says, oh, I'm the resurrected Christ. And it really is Him. But your leaders are saying, this guy's a nut. You're going to buy into what they're saying more than likely. Because at that point, remember, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They had not been given the Holy Spirit till Christ died on the cross. And so until Peter preached on Pentecost, or got the Spirit on Pentecost, and then preached, 
And by the way, at Pentecost, when he preached in Acts chapter 2 and 3 and, and 4, when he's preaching there, the Spirit came instantaneous. It, when people believed, the Spirit came in and, and baptized them in the Spirit. They were, they were transformed. They were babes, but they were transformed. And so why did God delay over in Acts chapter 8 when the Samaritans believed? What? They were new to the kingdom. And who had to let them in? Peter, who had been given the keys. That's why he was sent by the apostles to go unlock the door and say, these guys are in. They're in. And, and so we, we endorse that everything that happened in Jerusalem is happening here. They're speaking in tongues. We see the gifts of the Spirit manifest. So how can we say they're not part of this body? All right. The same thing happens over in Acts 10 with Cornelius, and that's what we're going to look at today. But in between Samaria, Samaria and Cornelius of the Gentiles was Saul. And, and, and Luke is, remember, he's writing to Theophilus under the inspiration of the Spirit and he's laying out what happened and who is going to be the greatest voice to the Gentiles? Yeah. Saul and Paul. <laughs> Both answers are right. So it was Saul. So the story of Saul's told and now we go into Peter who's unlocking the keys to bring in the Gentiles and say the Gentiles are also accepted. Now, for us, you know, we go, okay, big deal. The Gentiles in there. We can't even imagine, as, listen, as politically divided as we are, as economically divided as we are, as racially divided as we are, that no matter how bad you think things are here, it was a hundred times worse with the Gentiles and the Jews. The Jewish people looked at the Gentiles as pagans destined for hell. Remember, throughout history, what had God told the Jewish people to do to the pagans when they went in? Kill them all. Kill them all. I mean, think about that for a second. I mean, like that command alone right there, that was their history. These people are worthy of death. They're not, they're not even worthy to live. And so... And now the Jewish people thought that about the Gentiles, but what about the Gentiles and the Jews? The Gentiles and Romes were just as bad. Rome hated the Jewish people. Those people over at the Roman soldiers did not want to be over in Jerusalem. They didn't want to be in Judea. They considered it the armpit of the universe, kind of like Yuma, Arizona, where I was stationed. I mean, it's the same thing. They're just the armpit. There ain't much there. And they didn't want to be there. And they loathed the Jewish people. So you've got that going on. Listen to what Saul, who became Paul, says in Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant and promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one, has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall 
of hostility. In the same way, Gilbert, last week or two weeks ago, when you gave a great testimony of what God had done in your own heart about just the, the wall of hostility that could be there because of exterior is broken down by what takes place on the interior. And that's, that's what goes on. And there's really a story of two conversions today in, in, in Acts 10. It's the conversion of Cornelius into the family of God. And it's the conversion of Peter's racial and prejudice and religious prejudice. Because he's no longer prejudiced after that day. Well, he does stumble. Uh, he does stumble, but it's not because of his own views. It's because of fear of those around him. And, and that's an important distinction because sometimes fear causes us to do things that's just dumb. That's why we, can, we don't live in fear. But as we look at this text today, I, I, what I want you to see is what happens in Cornelius' life is, is really what's normative in every believer's life with, with these principles I want to bring out. Because... When we, when we think of, some, sometimes in Scripture when we look at ideas or things that are revealed, we tend to think of them in the big picture, the macro look, right? But what was the most important thing about what happened to Cornelius? Was it the fact that the church allowed Gentiles, you know, the church basically was made up of Gentiles that were allowed to come in now? What was the most important thing for Cornelius? He got saved. I mean, he, this guy was destined for hell apart from Jesus. And that day, it says he was saved. Was he a religious guy? Of course he was. Did he do religious activities? Of course he did. Can religious people who do religious activities go to hell? Of course they can. He was not saved. He was not a believer. He was a God-fearer who did religious things. And God came in and He redeemed him. And that, that is a salvation experience. And so as we look today, in every salvation experience, every salvation experience, we see these things. First, a divinely orchestrated plan. In every one. Every one. Yours, mine, Bennett's, doesn't matter. Jeff's, Chuck's, Every salvation experience is divinely orchestrated. Some of us see it more dramatic than others, right, Gil? I mean, for some of us, we think it's just a chance meeting or I just got invited to this meeting or this church or wherever. For some people, God gets our attention through something significant. But it's a divinely orchestrated plan. God's sovereign in all of it. And He's sovereign in choosing His people. He's sovereign in choosing the timing. And He's sovereign in choosing the plan of how it happens. And so, we need to be really careful as Christian leaders and as Christian when we're in the church in being pragmatic about thinking what God may want. Because everybody wants to grow their church. Everybody wants to grow their group. But what if God doesn't want you to grow your group? You go, well, wait a minute. He wants everybody in the kingdom. 
Yeah, but he may not want them all worshiping with you. What if he only wants you to have a handful at your church? Because he wants you to be like Gideon. He wants you to be able to do incredible things in your community and not depend on the vast numbers of people that can... If you got 10,000 people, everybody gives a dollar, it's one thing. If you got 10 people and they give $10,000, that's something else. And so who gets the credit? And a lot of times when we build bigger and it's more human goal-oriented, a lot of times the humans get the credit. You don't believe me? Think about big churches. So not, listen, God uses them. But think about big churches. If you go up and you talk to people at a big church, 90% of the time, 90%, go do try this. If you ask people about it, why do they go there? Oh, he's a teacher. He's a good speaker. Whatever. When's the last time you heard, well, this is where God wanted me? Seriously. Well, God, I'm here because this is where God wants me. You see, we, we, when you become so pragmatic, a lot of your decisions are driven by the outcome. That not so with God. And we're going to see that today in the text. We're going to see how God chooses to do things different than you and I would do it if we were in charge. So, first, a divinely orchestrated plan. Second, He used divinely ordained priests. In other words... For every salvation experience, God brings a divinely ordained priest. There's there's somebody that God chooses, and for Him to choose Jeff means He doesn't necessarily choose me. Or maybe He chooses me and Jeff. We go together. But He chooses. And sometimes we think that, well, if I could just get Billy Graham to share with my nephew, I know he would trust Christ. If I could just get this person in front of him, I know that would make the difference. Maybe. Maybe. But again, we've got to be careful of outcome-based thinking. We need to be obedient-based in our thinking instead of outcome-based. And so, divinely ordained priest. And then third, we're going to see a divine opportunity to profess the faith. And what do I mean by that? Almost every salvation experience has some kind of obedient opportunity that comes pretty shortly after. In other words, there's, 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 there's something involved where there's an obedience that shows you love God. Because He says in His Word, if you love Me, what? Keep my You'll keep My commandments. How is our love for God demonstrated to the world around us? By obedience. And so that's how we profess. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that with both Peter and with Cornelius. And finally, we see in every salvation experience a, div- uh, a divinely observable presence. In other words, God's presence is in every salvation experience through the people that are sharing the good news. Why? Because where does God reside? In the hearts of people. And we see that even Cornelius, when Peter came in, he says, he uses the phrase, we are in God's presence, waiting to hear, recognizing that God is in the people that are there. So let's look at the text, and we're going to come back and look at each one of these. Okay? I'm going back to Acts chapter 10. 
starting in verse 1. It's kind of a long passage, so hang with me. Um, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now, let's just stop there for one second. A cohort was made up of six centuries. Okay? A century was 80 to 100 Roman soldiers. So he was one of like six centurions in a cohort that that was around the Caesarea area, which was a a pretty fortified port city uh, in Israel, right on the Med Sea. If you've been to Israel with me, you've been there. We've walked it. And so that's where they were. But it says he was from the Italian cohort, which means he was probably from Rome or somewhere over in and around Rome. So here he is, a foreign Gentile who is in Caesarea not wanting to be there. He's not wanting to be there, and, and yet he's a leader. He's a centurion. He's a leader, and who's, he's one, the, the, the centurions were kind of known as the blue-collar workers. They were the, they were the leaders of 80 to 60, but they were, the, they were known for their grit and known for their leadership. And so here he is, and he's not the first centurion we see in Scripture. In fact, every time we see a centurion in Scripture, I believe it's with something good said about him or something good happening to them. You know, it's a positive portrayal of them, which is interesting to me. But as we look at this, it says, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. So what does that tell you about him at home? Did he teach his kids about fearing God? Of course he did. He gave alms generously to the people, so he took care of the poor. And he prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. Now when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. Three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Three times. Why did it have to happen three times? Well, it, he was stubborn. I mean, this, 
I mean, he starts off by saying, but I ain't doing that, Lord. I mean, he says, I'm not going to do that, Lord. Does that remind you of something? That ain't going to happen to you, Lord. You're not going to wash my feet, Lord. Three times this vision had to come to him. What does that show you about God? His persistence in keeping His plan and working through His people. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guest. That has more meaning than we get from it, but he basically, it, the word means to entertain. He invited them in to spend the night. They spent the night with him which was a huge deal because why? They were Gentiles. They were Gentiles in the house of Simon the Tanner who was unclean because he worked with dead animals. So imagine what... So by the way, you wouldn't know this from this, but Peter spent about two years in Simon's house. In the house of a guy that handles dead animals. So he was already starting to get past the uncleanliness thing of people. So God was working on him. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. We know from chapter 11, six brothers, six believers went with him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. This guy is evangelizing and he's not even a believer yet. He had gone out and invited people to his house. What's our excuse? He's not even a believer. He's going out and inviting people to come here. What's going to happen? And he doesn't even know what's going to happen yet. And he didn't even know for certainty that Peter was, you know... He had faith he that he was coming yet, so sure. because it says here, it he says is. he was expecting them. That's faith. Faith expects. Faith expects. And so he's expecting them. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and then fell down at his feet and he worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. So what do you think he was praying? Well, I think if you go over to chapter 11, which we're going to look at probably in a few weeks, 
it says, He told us how he'd seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa, bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved in all your household. I think we could probably say with some measure of certainty he was praying to know God better. He was a God seeker. Those who seek me, they will find me. With the light that he had, he received it. And when you receive the light you're given, God gives you more light. And so, he was praying. And and a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Now, I want to address something that I myself have said and I've heard a lot of people say it. God says it. Well, God doesn't hear the prayers of an unbeliever. He does if that unbeliever is praying for God to reveal himself to him. Right. That's the prayer that he hears. And, and so he said, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. What, what is giving alms and giving to the poor demonstrate? Why would God make that in here? This, that's in here a couple of times we see that. Giving to, the poor, giving to the poor, one, honors God because He throughout Scripture has told people to do that. It's the second greatest commandment. Yeah, to love others. But it also shows faith to give away what's yours to share with somebody else. Believing that God will take care of you. That you don't have to hoard everything. Verse 20 or 32. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who's called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. That phrase, in the presence of God, I think that's one of the only times that's used in the New Testament like that. We are here in the presence of God. Why? Because God's people are there. What verse are you in? I'm sorry. Verse 33. We are in the presence of God. Why? Because God's people are there. And we're going to look at that. That was a divinely observable presence in God's people. And we're here to, we're here to listen to what the Lord would say to us. And, and guys, that, that has been God's desire for His people from the very beginning. That His people would be a channel of His Word and blessing to the rest of the world. When the Jewish people chose instead to think that they were just God's special people chosen to just consume instead of to be a carrier, that's where they got into problems. And I think we've kind of we've allowed a lot of that same mentality to infect the church where we're consuming instead of carrying. We're not a channel. And and we are to be a channel. And so Let's go back and look at verses 1-8 through as we look at this divinely orchestrated plan. God chose Cornelius. He could have chose anybody to be used as the one person uh, that He was going to make a statement with as a Gentile convert, but He chose a Roman centurion. Think about that. Who controlled that part of the world at the time? Rome. 
do you think it was going to be an issue for Cornelius to no longer bow to the emperor? Of course it was. We don't even think about stuff like that, though. I mean, when we read about it, it's so far removed from us. But imagine him being trained, fighting for Rome, going through all the traditions, the pagan worship. And somewhere along the line, he got enough of the pagan worship and said, man, this is so empty. And maybe it was a servant. Maybe it was a slave in Caesarea. Somebody had shared with him And he bought in enough to what the Jewish message was that he was a God-fearer. There were three types of Gentiles to the Jew. There was your basic pagan who was just pagan. Then there was a God-fearer. And then there was a proselyte, somebody who had actually been circumcised and baptized into the Jewish faith. He didn't go into the Jewish faith. But this is about 10 years after Christ. This is about 10 years after the resurrection. So the message of Jesus had spread. The following or the way had spread. The you know, people talking about it. So for some reason, he was a seeker, but he had not gone to Judaism, but he was giving to help the poor. He was praying when the Jews prayed. And so here he is asking God for something. And God says, I'm going to pick this guy, Cornelius, of all the people, and this is going to be recorded throughout time as the Gentile that's going to open the door for everybody else. So God is sovereign over every person He brings into the kingdom. He's sovereign over His people. Galatians 1.15, remember we just covered that a couple of weeks ago with Paul. Paul was killing Christians and he said what? Before the world began, God appointed me to be His messenger. Before I was even born. He appointed me. Over in um, John 6.44, Jesus said, no one can come to the Father unless what? To to me unless what? The Father draws them. It starts with God. We've become so human-centered in the way we share the Gospel with people. We make it all about the people and it doesn't start with God. God is sovereign over every choice. Over every choice. Choice. Now, there's a human responsibility that we see lived out in Cornelius and Peter. But God sovereignly orchestrates the plan. And we see even over in Acts 13, we're going to cover it in a couple of weeks, that Acts 13, listen to 1348. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So God divinely orchestrate this. God's sovereign in who He chooses. He's sovereign in the timing. Isaiah 65 says, 65-24 says, before they call, I will answer. What does that tell you? Before they call, I will answer. Think about what's going on. You've got this Roman soldier, this centurion, not just a soldier, but a leader of soldiers. A commander of soldiers. Did you listen to the language that he used with Peter, a fisherman? Some podunk fisherman. Jewish fisherman. And he he bows down to worship him. 
And when he bows down, he tells him to get up. And, and what does he say? Cornelius doesn't talk like a salty soldier here. He says, listen, we're, you know, thank you for coming. <laughs> we're so glad you came. And we're here and in the presence of God and we're ready to hear whatever the Lord would say. Well, he had seen a pretty impressive uh, vision. He did see the vision and he was terrified. He, was, he had terror on his face. Yeah. But still, my point is, he didn't view Peter as just a fisherman. God was divinely orchestrating His people, His timing, and His plan. And by the way, it is His timing because Paul, remember, wanted to go to Asia and Bithynia, and God said, no, not now, Paul. This is not, not the time. You're not the person. So when you keep trying to knock down a door that God's saying, I put this up there for a reason right now, you might want to consider what you're doing and really ask, God, is this where you want me? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing instead of what I want to do? But God, I, I think if I can just do this, and He's like, I don't want you to do that. That's why I got the door up here. Come on. Pay attention. <laughs> and he's sovereign in his plan. Isaiah 55 8 says, My plans are not like yours. <clears throat> Who he sends, when he sends, and how he sends is his business. You can't tell God what to do. No. So we see this divinely orchestrated plan, guys, not just in Cornelius, but in every salvation. Listen, you got. Cornelius over here, Peter over here. He has a vision, he has a vision. To my knowledge, there's no other time before this that Peter ever had a vision. So this is the first time for both of them to have this heavenly vision. And what do they do? They immediately respond to it and obey. But it was bizarre. He's told, send a guy to this guy Peter. He may have known who Peter was by reputation. A, a leader in the way. The following. But he's, he's in the vision, he's told to send people there. You might wonder, well, why? I wonder, why wouldn't I go? Why wouldn't I go to him? Why do I need to send people to bring him here? Any thoughts? Why? So he could round up his family and his friends. Well, that's one good thought. That's a good thought. I think that it was so that Peter would go in the midst of a very Gentile area in Caesarea and in Cornelius' house. He would go into Cornelius' house and everybody was gathered there and they would see the acts all played out. And that's why he took six guys with him. Because God didn't command him to take anybody with him. He just told him to go. Go with them. And so he took six guys. By the way, how many witnesses were you supposed to have in, in, in Judaism? Two. So he took three times the normal. How many times did the vision come down? Three times. Hmm. Really? Oh, and by the way, have you guys ever had anything like that happen? i, I got to share a quick story because it's so bizarre. So... In 2008, I was really struggling. I was with a ministry called East West Ministries. And, and I was just feeling frustrated. And, and my plans were frustrated. I, I, I didn't know if, if it was God, if it was me, if He wanted me to be there. I was trying to figure everything out and wanted to be obedient. 
And so I'm there, and a good friend of mine and mentor said, Doug, I feel like you're on the precipice. God is about to launch you into kind of a new area. Because at that time, I was thinking I was going to be like a Billy Graham-style evangelist, obviously not on that scale, but on a smaller scale. I'd already had an opportunity to preach to 50,000 people in India, 35,000 in Nepal, and share the gospel. And I, I sense that was great. I loved doing that. But I didn't know God kept closing doors to that. And I had this connection with a guy named Joe White who runs a camp in Missouri. But Joe was doing stuff for Promise Keepers. He had taught me to do this cross presentation as an evangelistic outreach. And so we're in Missouri and, and I was so frustrated with what was going on. And I just, I, I prayed one night. I just said, Lord, I would, I would love to work with Joe. I mean, I heard Joe was doing stuff with men's ministry, and I said, I would just love to do something with Joe. And because and we're there at his camp, and he'd always been a great encourager to me. And uh, the next morning, I get up and I walk out of my cabin, and Joe's walking down. He goes, Hey, Doug, how you doing? I said, I'm doing good. How are you? He goes, I had a dream about you last night. I, I, it was clear as day, you and me doing ministry together. What would you think about that? I get goosebumps when I think about it because I, I, that was less than 12 hours. And, and I, I, I just, it was one of those moments that I went back and I just started to weep. And I wept because I sensed God heard my prayers. I sensed God knew my heart and what He was doing. He moved in a guy. And it was so, it was just so affirming to me that that I, I shared that prayer with God, and less than twelve hours later, he supernaturally moved in a dream in a guy. These were these were visions. He moved in both of them, and so imagine when Peter's hearing what Cornelius says about why he sent the guys. And he's going, okay, God's doing something. That's what I thought. Oh, yeah. God's doing something here. And guys, do you know that what Joe White, God used him to build into me is what the reason they're SWAT today. It is. It, it, it is the discipleship, the, the going deeper and not just splitting all over the country. And there's, listen, there's guys that do that and God calls them to that. But he wasn't calling me to that. And I was trying to fit into a mold. And he said, nope, I don't want you to do that, Doug. I want you to do this. And so, because we're, he uses divinely ordained priests in salvation experiences. Everybody's... Do you know who was in Caesarea, by the way? Who was in Caesarea when Cornelius was there that God could have used but chose not to? Paul. No, he wasn't there yet. Who? Yeah, didn't he go to oh, Pilate was there. Pilate, that was kind of like one of his headquarters. But no, Philip was there. Philip had gone through Azotus and was now in Caesarea after Samaria. And you know, if we had been in charge, we'd go, hey, Philip just was used greatly by God over in Samaria. You know, uh, and we got this God-fearing God, Cornelius. Let's hook him up. You know, maybe God will do something in the Gentiles. We'd have a plan all worked out and we'd have it all set out. And God says, nope, that's not the way I'm going to do it. 
And you go, but wait a minute, God, you did it over here like this, and then Peter came and blessed it. We could still get Peter. He goes, no, Peter's going to be the one to come and do it. I'm in charge of resources. I ordain priests for every situation. And whether it's Henry Persons over in Kazakhstan, whether it's Joe Leon, the guy I met over in Houston, that I ordain the circumstances, and he does it with me, he does it with you. He always uses people. And I had somebody say, yeah, but what about Saul? When, when was Saul baptized in the Holy Spirit? Was it on the road to Damascus? Nope. Where was it? It was with Ananias after he laid hands because God uses people. He could have spoke to him through an angel and told him what to do, but he didn't. He chose to bring Peter because he chose to work through people. Exodus 19.6 It's been this way from the beginning. And what was the purpose of the priest? The go-between between man and God. And God and man. And he says, Exodus 19.6 You are a kingdom of priests to go and do what? You're a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak. You, you speak for me as my priest. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter picks up on the same thing. You are a kingdom of priests. You're set apart. You're a holy nation. What? To proclaim the excellencies of Him. So that's what we do as priests. And we see it in Peter, right? Acts chapter 2, the Jews. Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans. And now here, Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles. He has the keys. He's opened it up. And he's proclaiming. He's proclaiming. Why? Because that's what priests do. Romans 10, and I've said this at least four times in the last three weeks. Romans 10 says, how will they hear unless somebody's sent? And how, why are they supposed to be sent? Because faith comes by what? Hearing, Hearing the Word. It was always about God's Word. About Jesus. It's not like the Pharisees who thought they found life in the Scriptures themselves. The Scriptures are nothing unless they point you to Jesus. That's the purpose of all the Scriptures. To point us to Jesus. And so we are to be proclaiming that as His ordained priest. So in every salvation experience, you see the divinely orchestrated plan. You see divinely ordained priests. And you also have this divine opportunity to profess through your obedience. Both uh, when he sent somebody to go get Peter, when Peter was obedient to come, there was obedience. That's the only way people see that we're really his. That's how they can tell we really love him. Because anybody could say, listen, there's 12 inches between here and here, right? 12 inches. There's a lot of guys in SWAT who know Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. Because they know Him here, but they've not known Him here. And, and that is scary to me. Listen, I, I, I look at people all the time who, who are no longer following Jesus because they knew Him here. I know one guy for 25 years. He was a deacon. He was an evangelizer. He did all the outreaches. And now he's no longer with Christ. He knew Him here but not here. Twelve inches. Twelve inches from heaven to hell. Twelve, inch, twelve inches from peace 
to eternal torment. Twelve inches. And the only way that the world can see that this is where Jesus is is through our obedience. That's why Jesus said, if you love Me, you'll obey Me. If you abide in My Word, you're truly disciples. Well, you know, I don't read the Bible much. Well, how can you abide in something you don't read? How can you do that? Well, you know, I love God. I just, I just don't go to church much. I really, you know, I love God, but I, you know, I, I just, I don't understand the Bible. How can you love Him? Do you really believe that Jesus brings anybody into His kingdom and then prohibits them from learning His Word? No. It's a divine opportunity to profess. And what does Cornelius do? He did exactly what God told him to do. God told him to send somebody. He sent somebody. And he went and invited people to come with an expectation that God was going to move in Peter to come. He knew Peter would have boundaries. He knew Peter would be violating what every Jewish person would not want to do. But yet, he expected him to come. Why? Because the angel had told him. There was, this, there was this obedience there. 1 John 2.4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I think of Luke 9.23, when Jesus himself says, listen, anyone who wants to follow me, he's got to, what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There's a lot of people today that go, oh, I want to follow Jesus. And it takes me back to Luke 9 at the end of that where God says, I want to follow you. Hey, birds have nests, foxes have holes, son of man has no place to lay his head. What is he saying to that guy? He didn't go, wow, Jeff, thanks. Come on board, let's go. Can you imagine? Hey, I really want to get involved at church. Some guy goes, foxes have holes, birds have nests. But Jesus has no place to lay his head. You're going to go, what? What in the world is he talking about? I just told him I'm in. Jesus, Jesus was identifying if the guy was really in or not. I, I want to follow you, but first I've got to go bury my dad. Oh, by the way, he's not dead yet. I'm just waiting to get the money so I'll have money on our trip. So you're not going to trust the Father. Is that what you're saying? Oh, let me go say goodbye. And then if you don't put your hand to the plow without looking back, you're not worthy. You see, obedience is the only way to profess our love for God to the world around us. That shows we're different. Just saying it means nothing. And so, Gil, when you stand up and you share... I mean, when you're going through what you're going through and you're able to testify that you love Him, and more importantly, you love me, (laughs) well, kind of, maybe, a little bit. I know that's a stretch. (laughs) But that's a testimony. That's saying, I love Doug, not because of Doug, but I love Doug because of Jesus. We don't love people because of what they do for us. We love people because of what He did for us. That's why we love others. That's why we love them. And finally, 
we see in that last verse this presence that he talks about. And, you know, at the end of Ephesians 2.18, it says we have access through one Spirit of the Father. And what Cornelius saw in those people, those believers there, was the presence of God. And he said that we are here in the presence of God to hear what you would say to us from the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3 said God's Spirit dwells in you if you're His. 1 John 4, God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. That means to walk with. Where we go, Christ goes. We are the temple. See, that's a big difference in the Old Testament temple. The Old Testament temple was come and see God. The New Testament is go and be God. You are the temple. And so the presence he talked about there, the divinely observable presence was Peter and those six believers that were there. And now here's what's interesting, and I'll close with this. I want you to think about this. Peter was in Joppa for two years in the home of an unclean guy because he worked with dead animals. What would every Jewish person have known Joppa for? That's right. And what what happened at Joppa with Jonah? And he was running from God. Why? He didn't want to go to the Gentiles. He did not want to go to the Ninevites. He was afraid of God's mercy on them and he didn't want to go. And isn't it interesting that God brings Peter there for two years before He gives him a vision? Isn't that crazy? Guys, I've read this passage so many times and until this past week, I'd never even thought about that. I never even thought about that. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, why Joppa? Why Joppa? Duh, Jonah. He wanted to run away from the Gentiles. And, and God says, no, Jonah, you go to them. You be obedient to me. So God calls Peter from Joppa to Caesarea. Caesarea and Rome were the, that was the Ninevites for Peter. And he says, you go do it. And he was obedient. And now he's going to go back and we're going to see next week what he shared with him. But I want to make two quick observations about Cornelius. Remember we, we talked about the four things necessary for salvation. Humility, dependence, change of heart, and, and a seeking of God, not His gifts. Do you see humility in Cornelius? When he bowed down to Peter, you bet. Do, do you see dependence in him? Yeah. What did he say? We're ready to hear we need to hear from you is we don't know what to do, but we're here. So we see two of the elements and I think we'll see the next, the, the next two ex- elements next week. So, man, I love this stuff. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm, I, I love... This is so cool to me to see how God unfolds all this stuff. Don't forget how sovereign He is. Alright? Dave, will you close in prayer? Thanks for putting up with me. Uh, I just love being in the room for you. I pray.